right, folks, you know you're in for a treat when you hear that tune because it's time for another episode of the Rec Poker Podcast. So we got to thank our sponsors, the Running Aces Hotel, Racetrack and Casino and website AMP. Uh, and I got to thank our listeners for joining us here. My name is Jim Reed. I'm Bluffsterini in the home game. I've got the best job in the freaking world. And if you want to find out more about me, you can go to rec.poker slash crew, because that's where you can learn about everyone on the wrecking crew. Uh, or you could just listen up because you're about to meet a few of them tonight. Well, I'm Chris Jones. You can find me 5B5 on Twitter or 5by5 on PokerStars Home Game. And I'm John Somsky. I'm Poker Geek MN everywhere. I'm Rob Washam, and I'm Rabman50 just about everywhere. Hi, everybody. My name is Woody Adams. I am Rocket Box on PokerStars Pennsylvania and at Woody Adams on Twitter. Right on. And just like every week here on the forums edition of the Rec Poker Podcast, um, any premium members are welcome to join. Tonight, we've got John Crowell. And uh, John's been an active member in the forums here at Rec Poker. He's been on the show a few times. And uh, we're also joined for the second week in a row by the one and only Tommy Angelo. Uh, So all you premium members who are listening at home, this is why you got to show up to the forums edition every once in a while, because you never know who's going to come around. So, uh, uh, Tommy, thanks for coming back. We're going to talk about uh, another hand today and uh, get to know what's going on inside that poker brain of yours. <laughs> cool. <laughs> thanks for having me. Yeah. Oh, we love it. Um, so last week we were talking about um, sort of playing more aggressively, uh, playing a wider range of hands, looking for good bluff spots that aren't those sort of like lock of the weeks that you get to just count on 100%. Um, and uh, yeah, it's such a, a cool thing to be talking to you as you explore. I think you said turning over an old leaf again. Yeah. Is that, that's too perfect, man. I, <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, and you're playing at the Oaks, uh, which, from what I understand, is also Eric Jin, our Binkley, uh, his home, his home casino. So that you might have uh, stumbled across Eric. Well, hold Jin on, let there. me look him up. Hi, Eric. Who? Yeah, G I N. He's a member of our wrecking crew here. Eric what do you mean, Jin. Binkley? Uh, that's his player name, uh, Com Binkley. Oh, oh, that's Eric his username. Poker. Let me see if he shows up. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, he's a, he's a regular. Oh. Oh. He's a regular. He's also a world famous uh, skydiver. So Eric's, he's, Eric's oh. got a lot going for him. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've seen Eric around. I there think he go. came when Lee, Lee Jones and I, when we were doing our um, poker simple videos, yes. we did a mug. At oh Oaks, yeah, and he came right on. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I think that, yeah, he, that's in his backyard. Well, he he's a cool. great guy. And uh, I think my man, uh, Jamel Cuevas, is also going to be making a, a, a trip out to play at the Oaks sometime this fall. So uh, look, 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 look live. If you see some rec poker gear, you've probably got some, yeah. uh, some fans looking to connect. That's awesome. That's awesome, Tommy. That's awesome. Um, all right. So let's, let's talk about uh, some of your experiences there. You've been playing live. Yeah, uh-huh. you, we talked a bit about sort of a, an earlier spot where you could play out of position really aggressively. Uh, against certain players um what other what other kinds of hands have you been experiencing lately or what's what's piqued your interest as you've been tickling the felt yeah well i've i've uh as we went over last time i basically uh raised the aggressiveness and the number of flops i've seen significantly mm. since i started playing at oaks and was introduced to some concepts um the game there is it's 
technically a 2-3-5 game. They use three blinds here, and it's voluntary winner straddle. So everybody, every day, does a winner straddle <laughs> on every hand, no matter how many tables. That's why it's a 5-10 game. That's why I'm playing. Right? I see. And, and it, it's, a, it's a Mississippi straddle. Okay, so for some of our audience. of the $10 straddle. What's that? Okay, so the winner straddle, does that mean that whatever position they're in, yeah. Uh, at the time that they won the previous hand, right. now they have the option to straddle. They straddle. Right. And you're saying that it's a Mississippi straddle, which means that the action then starts to their left. Correct. No matter of where the blinds were. Right. Okay. And this, um, you know, my, my approach toward rules is I, I have no opinions about any of them. I just adapt to them. Yes, good. But if I were to rate rules in terms of <laughs> which ones generate more profit than others. Yes. This is really profitable. Because yeah. every hand is a unique situation. Every single hand, which right. creates more potential for cleverness and more potential for confusion mm-hmm. and more conten- mm-hmm. potential for all kinds of silly stuff. So that that's one of the things I, lo- I love about the game. One thing I've been, uh, you know, during my steady boring years, of consistent, boring, reliable profit. I did. I my my betting ranges were more narrow. Now I'm doing everything from min raising to to squeezing for a hundred, like instead mm. of sixty. Mm-hmm. All kinds of stuff, you know, um, can happen. And like if you're on the button, when people see that you're going to be on the button, that gives your raise even more weight. They're like, wow, not only do I got to call this guy, but I'm going to be first, right? Right. So if there's like seven, six limps for 10 and I'm on the button, I make it 100, like 100% of the time. <laughs> Stuff like that. I'm just taking the guesswork out of it. Mm. Um, uh, the the only other hand I wrote down was, was one. This one has all kinds of interesting ram- strategic ramifications. Cool. And I just wrote it down, you know, because it felt kind of interesting. I had pocket eights. It has several aspects of this hand or, or things that come up a lot that I that I think I do pretty well. Um, one of them is if I'm the preflop aggressor and there's one over card, uh, I don't let go. I always bet the flop, and I don't. And and in the old days, I would then maybe check the turn, but mm-hmm. now I'm barreling again because mm-hmm. I'm really finding that that people are going to even fold that top pair often enough when they do happen to have that because they limped in or whatever, it's like, they don't have ACE queen. They probably have, you know, when the queen jet, when the queen come, yeah, so this hand, I had pocket eights. Um, I made it 40 and I was going to be first act after the flop. Now the guy that called right behind me was one of the guys I mentioned in the previous video, fairly tight, fairly predictable wreck. Now, when I say that, I say that with great respect. This is a guy who makes his living playing poker. You know, anybody mm-hmm. that can pull that off. Great. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be the most creative player in the world when you're playing against a really soft field. True. So he, he plays this more like how I did, right? He just takes it easy. So, and he gives me a lot of respect before the flop, and so um, which affects my range analysis of him. So he called another guy called flop was nine three deuce with two spades. Okay, and I have pocket eights. So I bet out eighty, which was the determined amount I knew I was going to bet two thirds mm-hmm. pot. Mm-hmm. Um, and he hemmed around for a little bit and called. Okay, so now his range is tens, jacks, queens, um, 
ace king or ace queen suited if it happens to be spades. Could he have ten nines? Oh, oh, um, uh, he was, uh, um, we said it was a blind. Yeah, he was in the cutoff. Okay, so he okay. had some positional stuff going for him. Yep. Would he? Would he cold call um, my forty with ten nine suited there? I think he might. Mm-hmm. I'm looking mm-hmm. at the bottom of his range right now. Mm-hmm. Where is mm-hmm. it? Ace nine yep. suited. I think he might. Okay. Yep. So that, those are the only hands he could have. Um, if he has a nine and I see and I continue the turn, is he going to lay it down and put me on tens, jacks, or queens? I think he will mm-hmm. you know, often enough. Okay. Um, so uh, so I, I bet I, I should have written all this down. So I bet 80 he calls. So there's 160 plus. 120, 260 in the pot. Um, I I don't remember what the turn card was. Um, Because, oh, oh, I remember the key part of the hand. The key part of the hand now. Yeah, I do remember. The turn was was a a blank of some sort. Mm -hmm. But I remember um, the effective stacks at this time were 700. And this is what I was, this is what I'm thinking about. Is like, if he has a flush draw, I need to I need to size this so that he's not getting the right price for the flush draw, and that I'm putting enough pressure on him to fold a nine, or maybe even pocket tens. Okay. So he had seven hundred left, so I bet four hundred, which is a little <laughs> lopsided bet. <laughs> Te- you know, technically you're leaving an awkward bet size on the river. Right, but that was a that was the, the right amount to bet there. Um, I really hadn't anticipated what I would have done if he'd raised, which I'm supposed to have already done. Um, <laughs> but I just got the feeling he wasn't going to do that. So um, he actually called. He thought about it forever and called. Ooh. And the river came. Whatever I checked, he immediately checked. I showed. He showed Ace King of Spades. Okay, right. which is a very, very narrow part of his range. I mean, mm-hmm. he didn't three-bet pre-flop, right? So I don't think there's much we can read into, you know, rating my play based on how it turned out. The main thing is that I'm betting the turn again in yep. situations like this that I used to not against mm-hmm. this type of player. I used mm-hmm. to just say, okay, he's got a nine, he's got pocket tens, I give up. So that's really the moral of that story. Yeah, that's actually that's something we we talk about a lot in our group. Um, actually, like bluff targeting, because people talk about value targeting. Like, if I put a value bet out there, what's the hand that's going to call me that I'm trying to get action from? And I think when you've got a hand like pocket eights in the way that you describe it, you know, getting a nine to fold is great. Like, that's a really that's a valuable outcome that is worth investing some chips in for sure. Right. Um, and then also. You know, combine that with giving him the wrong price on a flush draw. Uh, he's really he's really playing your game when he makes that call too, because uh, yeah. you're not giving him the right odds, right? Yeah, but, and I, I bet if we asked him, see, see, I've I've been playing spunkier, right? And the, these things get noticed. If if I if we asked him, he would probably say he thought he had actual showdown value with the ace king, right? And I might have just been pounding ace queen, mm-hmm. and part of the reason he called four hundred cold, and he got this part right was that I was going to check any hand that he could beat. And he's right about yep. that, right? Yep. And so his play 
if it was basically hit the flush or hit an overpair or bust, he wasn't getting the right price. But I think he felt he had some showdown value, and he and I think he was right That's against my point. range. That's a good point, uh, Rob. Yeah. I think you unmuted first. Why don't you jump in? I was just going to say um, you're talking about double barreling here. You're talking about you pick that continuation bet, and whether that card improves you or not, you're going to double barrel. And I think what we're finding in a lot of the games that we're playing today is the population doesn't believe continuation bets on the flop anymore. Mm. Right. So there's so many people that are continuation betting so often that they know they can't always have it. And so they wait until the turn and we call it being turn honest. You know, there, if, if you bet the turn, whether you get there or not, it doesn't matter. (laughs) It's people think once you bet the turn, they're going to give you credit for having a hand and now they're going to fold. Exactly. I I strongly agree. Yeah. Great observation. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's all, you know, anytime there's any kind of trend, you need to buck the trend and bucking the trend is barreling the turn here. Uh, John? Yeah, John yeah I had a question about that on just how do you decide who you're going to bet the turn against? Mm. Um, because I, I've been known to get a little aggressive now and then at the poker table and yeah. uh, not always in good spots, you know, yeah. that I don't realize until after the fact. So how do you determine what makes a good spot or a good position to go ahead and do fire that second bullet? Well, the most important thing is the dryness of the board, Mm. in my opinion, Mm -hmm. right? So anytime you, you know, we'll go extreme if it's, you know, king, eight, deuce, rainbow, and you bet the flop, then and somebody calls, all you got to figure out is um, would they fold a nine if you bet again, if they have the second pair, eight, right? Would they fold if you bet again or or are they just, let's say they got nine, eight. This goes right back to the other point, okay? People are going to peel one off with the nine, eight there because they don't trust the C-bet. Yeah. We're talking about a board of king, eight, deuce. So they got second pair. And to some extent, you got to know your customers, but I think in the, in the long run, I mean – if you just it, with a board that dry, let's say the bottom card pairs or it comes a three, I really think if you bet there like a hundred percent of the time and and force the guy to call you with you know king ten or whatever, and then it goes check check and you lose, if you are playing in a live cash game in a limited player pool that that money will come back around mm-hmm. you know in in getting paid off more later mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um but Back to your question, yeah, it's some extent it's who is the player. You know some players are not going to be the ones that are just hanging around for a street to hope to get a free turn. And, you know, the guys are only going to call on the flop if they have something huge and you just give up. But I think the dryness of the board is the key thing. It's like if the board starts out medium dry like Jack, Nine, Deuce, Rainbow, and you bluff at that, and now it comes to 10 with a backdoor flush, you know, and there's two or three people in, that's a situation where I might just give up. If I have absolutely nothing. But if the turn is an absolute blank deuce, I'm going to fire again every time. You know, that's one of the factors. Yeah, I like that. 
And I think that's something that we can all sort of study ourselves independently, looking at different flop textures and boards and thinking just about what are the scare cards that are going to come? What are the cards that are going to come in that are going to complete the hands that my opponent was drawing to? And then what are the bricks? And, you know, how can we act differently according to that? Because uh, yeah. that is one of the few predictable things of this game, right? That you actually get to sort of think about in advance a little bit. Um, one one last thing I want to talk to you about, Tony. Uh, t- why? Tony, why? That's twice. Oh, God. All right. Tommy Angelo, for God's sake. Um, uh, straddles. So we th- this isn't something that people are going to encounter in tournaments. There's a few different kinds of straddles. You've brought up already how it affects the strategy of the of the gameplay of the day of the day. So mm-hmm. uh, I think most people are familiar with an under the gun straddle, where mm-hmm. the player to the left of the big blind puts in two big blinds, and then they're they're like the the, the biggest blind, and the person to their left is now the first to act. Uh, so that's the the most common straddle that people see, and uh, that generally is you know good for the game in a sense. Like it makes the game play bigger, which means people's mm-hmm. stacks are smaller, and right. there's more money in the pot, which means people are more likely to play wider ranges. Um, but it's not a very advantageous position to put yourself in as the straddler right. if you were to pick one spot. Um, so do you do you play an under the gun straddle like? If everyone's doing it, uh, and and not otherwise, or how do you approach that particular? Yeah, well, if 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 everyone wants to straddle, I'm all for that. Yeah, especially going from two five to five ten because it doubles the stakes, and that those are my most comfortable stakes is ten tw- uh, five ten and ten twenty. Mm-hmm. So, um, but if it's just a regular old game, I'm never going to straddle under the gun. Right. The only time I might is if I'm a brand new player and I sit right down there. I've done that before. Just a little quick little misdirection play, you know, to not wait one extra hand for the big blind. Yeah. Um, but um, I wouldn't, you know, it's it's not a profitable play. Right. It's not. Basically. It's just not. Yeah. Yeah. No, but the Mississippi straddle, they I don't know how they do it in the World Series anymore, but um, I didn't go last year, but – in the cash game where I played every single World Series a lot, they had Mississippi Straddle voluntary. Okay. And it was real interesting because you'd have some games where there'd be like three of us straddling on the button every time. Yes. Only on the button. Right. And I've done a lot of analysis on that and, and thinking about it. And I really believe the profitability of that depends on my attitude, on just how, how bluffy I feel. Mm-hmm. Right. If I'm playing lockdown knit mode i'm not going to do it but if yeah. i'm kind of revved up and slinging then i think it, it's a, it's slightly intimidating too if you if you're the only person in the game straddling and you do it only on the button that's true when i was down in vegas with some of these guys uh, last year there were a few long island iced teas flowing and uh, the button straddle was on trust me the button straddle like i could see i could like that's such a much more valuable straddle to the individual than the under the gun straddle like they're they shouldn't even be talked about in the same fashion yeah you can sit down at the button for two big blinds and not only do you get to act last on every street but now the small blind has to act first right right so the the people with money in the pot they're already out of the way usually by the time it gets back around so like that really changes it Um, but you know when uh, it 
if I had to only pick one seat to every straddle from, it would be the cutoff. Okay. Because this is what's beautiful. The, the button right away has to pay 10 bucks or he's out. Right. <laughs> right. And, uh, Good point. You know, it clarifies the whole potential of the hand positionally right away. I do like that. And, and so there, uh, uh, Woody has mentioned in the chat here that when he was growing up in the game in New York, uh, they would call the Mississippi straddle only when it, when it was on the button. Um, but oh, it sounds like, but you're saying that in other versions of the Mississippi straddle is that anybody yeah. can choose whatever position to straddle. Right. Um, and then what happens if more than one person wants to straddle? How do you, how uh, the do you person who's it? out of position has the first choice. Okay. The worst position has the, that's how they do it here. And I've seen yep. that elsewhere. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's very cool. I like yeah. that notion of the cutoff. Uh, Cause then it's just like, you really are kind of buying the button a lot. Just like we were talking about before. Out yeah, you find out right now if, if this person has a $10 hand or a $40 hand or whatever. Uh-huh. You know? Uh-huh. All right. That's fun stuff. All right. Well, um, I don't know if anyone else has any other questions for Tommy um, before we roll on out of here. I've really enjoyed this conversation about position and playing differently against different players and talking about uh, the different kinds of straddles out there, that's something that I think a lot of our listeners should look into more because, you know, like we said earlier, anytime there's something new or different at the table, there's an opportunity for someone to make a bigger mistake than you. So if it's something you can mm-hmm. think about in advance or prepare for a little bit in advance, that's definitely going to be to your benefit. Um, Tommy, uh, most folks, if they want to connect with you, the best way to do it is to go to TommyAngelo.com. Is that right? That's it. All. My whole all, life is there. All roads lead to Tommy from uh, <laughs> yeah. TommyAngelo.com. All right, perfect. Well, I'm sure you're going to get a few folks that uh, want to come by and uh, learn some more from uh, the Zen master himself. Well, thank you again, Tommy. This has been a real pleasure. And I know our we'll audience it, is guys. really going to enjoy this. Yeah, well, I hope we get to talk again real soon. And in the meantime, also thanks to John, Chris, Rob, Woody, uh, John Somsky, uh, Steve Fredland for making all this happen. Rec- oh, oh, God, Running Aces Hotel and Website Amp. And you, the listeners. Thanks. Bye. Bye.